Well, welcome everybody to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We're so uh, glad to see you join us today. We're glad that you're here. And uh, Tom and I really looked forward to this interview with Jamia Wilson. And I want to credit Tom for, for learning about her and finding her and inviting her. Uh, it was a tremendous interview and conversation that we had together, and it's really grateful for it. Yeah, and Jamia is just one of these people that as I, w- I was spending some time researching, as Michael and I do for every interview, listening to other interviews that she's participated in, I just found her to be filled with an immense amount of wisdom, for somebody, especially for somebody in her 30s. Uh, oh my goodness. And I wanted to just learn more. So I kept listening to more and more and more of her interviews. And I'm just excited to continue to follow more of her work. So am I. And the interviews that I listened to and, and articles I read, blogs, were just, just tremendous. And uh, we, we feel very fortunate to have her as a guest. There's a quote that we found um, by Andy Stanley. It goes like this. If we fail to listen to people who don't experience the world the way we do, we will discount everything that doesn't fit perfectly into our own flawed worldview. And we agree with that very much. And we think it's incumbent upon us to learn about other people's worldviews, to learn about their lives, their experiences, their situations. And uh, having Jamia on today is absolutely one way that we personally can do that together. But we hope that everyone who's listening can do that as well. Most of us repel this notion of being uncomfortable, but in reality, uncomfortability is most often what fuels us, grows us, challenges us, and hopefully shapes us into the people that we long to be, the people we've ultimately been created to be. Without uncomfortability, we don't go anywhere, we don't learn anything new. And so this interview makes us uncomfortable in a good way. To give you a little bit of a bio of her, Jamia Wilson is a feminist activist, a writer, and a speaker. As director of the Feminist Press at the City University of New York and the former VP of Programs at the Women's Media Center, Jamia has been a leading voice on women's rights issues for over a decade. Her work has appeared in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, The Today Show, CNN, Elle, BBC, Rookie, Refinery29, Glamour, Teen Vogue, and The Washington Post. She is the author of Young, Gifted, and Black, The Introduction of an Oral History in Together We Rise, Behind the Scenes at the Protest Heard Around the World, Step Into Your Power, 23 Lessons on How to Live Your Best Life, Big Ideas for Young Thinkers, ABCs of AOC, and the co-author of Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Advocacy, and Activism for All. Jamia is also a storyteller and has been termed a natural-born thought leader. So, we hope you love this interview as much as we did. Well, Jamia, welcome to our podcast today. It is so good to have you on the program. We know you get asked to do so many interviews and have many conversations with many notable outlets and people. And the fact that you would give up an hour, especially on a Friday afternoon of your time with us, um, just means so much to us and to our listeners. So thank you. Oh, 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I love the premise of your program and what you all are doing. So I feel really honored to be a part of a conversation today and to meet you. Well, one of the questions we've had is from the first moment that we heard you speak and then afterwards as we've listened to more and more of your talks and we've read more of your writing, we've been overwhelmed with your sense of kindness, your compassion, empathy, and love for humanity, and also your determination and your willingness to lean into discomfort, which is a phrase that we often use when talking about problematic things and to address timely, relevant, crucial, and sensitive topics. And we just like you to, to talk a little bit about where that sense of compassion and love for people comes from, but also that sense of resolve. Mm, thank you, I, I really appreciate you saying this. I need to, and I feel like we all need this right now, to have this kind of affirmation from other humans right now. I talked to a couple of friends this week who have you know been going through loss or triggers related to loss that this moment can enliven in any of us who are kind of living through this global pandemic and this collective period of loss, reckoning, um, facing the big existential questions of life and, and purpose. And you know, I am someone who has generally said, oh, you know, we need to lean into discomfort, you know, comfort zones are not places where I generally have grown or where I've witnessed a lot of growth and other people around me. And yet I find myself in the past few months and in this past year, really wanting to cling to that which is stable and then seeing many elements of my life pointing in the direction that, oh no, my, your growth actually needs for you right now to be willing to transform, to be willing to let parts of yourself die for new parts to regenerate, to be born and facing my own sort of stubbornness around saying, oh, you know, 2020 doesn't feel like a good time to actually do any stretching because I've stretched enough, right? And yet knowing that, knowing that this is what we're called to do and that it's also a blessing to be able to be in a place of growth, right? And to be able to be in a place of expansion, to be able to have that opportunity to um, take risks and and so I, I'm, I'm in it just like everyone else right now too just feeling um, feeling my own sense of stress and sense of panic that and I think it's partially because you know I'm, I'm here in this experience with everyone else but then I also think that you know just like the pandemic has laid bare for our governments and our structures and our businesses and our economy, that which needs to be healed and fixed. I think it does the same for us as people that I am thinking, oh, there are things I kind of repressed or as a coping or survival mechanism pretended don't bother me that are happening in my life and my relationships and institutions, et cetera. And right now you can't hide from them. You kind of have a lot of time to sit with yourself, your thoughts and your realities. Um, and so I'm trying to kind of address that, face it, forgive myself for any judgment I have around how I've either shown up to or failed to show up, show up to those things. And then understand and know that whatever happens from my facing it will be growth, even if it hurts. But I think it's harder to do than, um, than we're often told or that it seems. And I think I'm just living in that. I'm, I like that you said that I have this resolve because I need to remind myself that <laughs> after this call and my next me uh, meditation, because I've been finding myself really resistant to opportunities for growth and even kind of seeing some self-sabotage show up and kind of 
wanting to say why. And I think it's because, oh, we've all been asked to grow and stretch so much because of this moment, right? And so I'm just noticing, oh, there's this part of me that really doesn't want to grow right now, really wants to just hide and, and be safe. And that's not an option. We all uh, love that sense of comfort. We're, we're drawn to comfort, but comfort isn't always the best place for us to be because like you said, that, that growth just doesn't occur when we're comfortable. So we need to be drawn to the things that make us uncomfortable because we know in the long run, it's gonna stretch us the way that we need to be stretched. So yeah. thanks. We certainly understand that. And, you know, we, again, as Tom said, we all love that comfort. <laughs> you know, and especially now because we have been stretched so, so far and, and, and so hard that, that um, it's understandable, but we also know that, that, is, that it is in the discomfort where we grow the most. And in fact, you mentioned loss. And you know, this is a time of great loss uh, for people, not, not simply the physical loss of people, but so many losses in our lives, so, you know, the losses of just community and, and interaction and connection and, 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 and health and jobs and so much. And in fact, we're writing a book. We've been writing for a couple of years, you know, putting to, together a book about loss. And uh, we, we are really trying hard this summer to do as much of it and get it finished as, as quickly as we can, because we think, well, if, if there's if there's a time that, that perhaps a book like this is needed uh, for people to deal with loss, to face it, to talk about it, to um, to confront it, uh, now is the time. And um, so we just think it's it's extremely vital right now. We have another question for you. If we remember correctly, you grew up as uh, an expatriate in Saudi Arabia. I did. Is that right? Yes, it's so, true. What are some of the experiences that, that shaped you and enriched you as you grew up, that, especially the experiences that have paved your way, you know, to be the person who you are today and the issues that you care so deeply about? And we ask this because we've written about this, too, the fact that we, when we think back on our lives as children, um, there were glimpses when we look back uh, as to who we would be today. There were glimpses of how we are we are now spending our time and, and our energy, and especially in the fact that we believe that humans need to connect in deep, intimate, vulnerable ways, and and so we we just ask you what what were what, what were those times and places and things that people who influenced you to become who you are today. Yeah, you know, I, I think about Saudi Arabia a lot. I, I miss it a lot. It's, I consider it one of my homes. Although I think when one grows up with an expatriate identity, we, you know, you spend a lot of time um, having your identity be one of displacement or one of not being at home. But I think that I learned that home has a different meaning to me than it might for people who kind of were born in their same hometown and stayed there and formed their life there and their relationships and grew up there. And so even seeing the difference between myself and my parents when my parents wanted to move back to the States, they really wanted to move back to their hometowns and I really resisted. I really didn't want to do that. And it's been interesting talking to my father about it. Um, now that my mom's passed away and I talked with her about it when she was still here about how I was the one who was adamant that we should not return to um, their hometowns because I never felt like those places were home to me. And I think that 
that is something that is really interesting that I always felt outsider, even among like my own family. Um, Cause I had a different dialect, a different experience, a different way of seeing the world. And not that I didn't love many aspects about home or not that I didn't connect culturally to certain things, but that I just knew I was different um, by virtue of growing up under different conditions by virtue of growing up expat, which is in itself an identity um, of being in and in between. Um, that is hard for people to understand who haven't lived it or who have a different kind of rootedness to a place or to a culture or to a, a set of conditions. And so I, I think about that a lot. And I think that's why I've been drawn to cities like New York City and Washington, D.C. And when I lived in Berkeley and Oakland, because those are places where you see a lot of people who are living in transition or moving from all over the world, or there's a lot of diversity in those places. And so when I look at my life now and how I've chosen to build it and with whom I've chosen to build it, the places I've gone, it makes a lot of sense to me because I want to, I'm more comfortable in spaces where there are people who've been a lot of places, lived a lot of places, are used to people who might be different um, or didn't grow up there and who are welcoming to people who didn't grow up there and set their lives up there. So that's just an observation that I, I've been leaning into. And I think Saudi Arabia, you know, there's so many things that I remember. I remember the first time I set foot there when I was five and a half years old and just what it smelled like and what the heat felt like and what it was like to, you know, have the feeling of dust on your skin getting off the plane. Um, the smell of like incense and oils and eating new foods and spices that I'd never experienced. And then those things becoming my familiar and the, becoming the things I crave now or the things that feel like home to me just as much as something like biscuits and cornbread also feel like home to me because I was raised in a Southern black family. So I, I have a lot of connection to that, but the, I think it's more about the people. So when I, when I think about a yearning or a connection, it's about the people I grew up with. And what I'm finding is that as it relates to the people, we are all kind of discovering that it wasn't so much the place, like there was so much about the beauty of Saudi Arabia and the hospital, hospitality of the people and um, the ability to travel the world and those things that we were afforded in that access time in our lives. But it was really about the people who were in Saudi Arabia at that particular time in Saudi Arabia's history and that particular time in expat experience in Saudi Arabia. That just connecting with expats who grew up there in the 60s, they had a different experience than what we did for the people who were growing up there when I was there in the 80s and 90s. And I'm having a different experience than the expats who are growing up there now. And so what I've discussed with a lot of my classmates who are the people that I miss and the experience I think of when I have that yearning is about those people, these other fellow expats, and also Saudis I went to school with who were a part of that experience, that um, that it was about that time and place. It was about the, the people who were there, what was happening in the world at that time, our shared experiences around that, and the changes that were happening. And I think I'm really curious about, you know, what is it like for the people who are growing up there now, now that women have the right to drive, now that um, guardianship laws are being talked about in a way that they weren't when I was younger um, to that degree or now that there's um, more voting rights for women in Saudi Arabia, although more needs to happen. And so all of that has really shaped my perspective. But I also think that growing up there and then sort of prejudices and stereotypes I experienced from Americans who found that out about me when I came back here also shape my perspective about how I look at my home country and how I 
look at my relationship to it, but I think I have an openness to critiquing America in a way that I don't know that I would have with the same sort of lack of um, self-consciousness, I think, if I didn't grow up here. And it's, um, you know, I, I think the James Baldwin quote really resonates with me that he loves America, but also part of that love is about loving the right to critique it. Like that's the part of free expression and, and those liberties, et cetera. And I think for me, coming here and just having people say things like, I'll give you an example. I had a doctor once who was asking me about having, did I ever live or grow up in a, country, a developing country, et cetera. And I you know, wrote down everywhere I'd lived or been exposed. And it was about figuring out why I had a gastrointestinal illness. And when he heard where I grew up, he said, well, why would your parents raise a girl child there? And I remember being so offended by that because I wanted to say, well, you could just ask, why would my parents raise a black child here? And he got really offended <laughs> when I asked that, but I didn't mean to be adversarial, right? Like it was more like, I, I really wanted to reflect back to him what that sounded like, that I'm like, oh yes, like I'm not going to debate with you that there need to be better human rights laws there and we need to interrogate these laws around gender. But last time I checked, women don't have constitutional equality in the U.S. We are not written to the Constitution. We don't have an equal rights amendment. Even if Hillary Clinton had become president, she would not have been protected equally by the Constitution. So it was interesting to me to see that he took that so personally and was so angry and took that like uh, as if I was saying something that was almost like blasphemous or um, heretical. And in fact, I was just saying that, you know, I believe more in complexity and nuance because I, of how I grew up, because yes, Saudi Arabia inarguably has many laws that I would like to see changed around human rights, around uh, gender justice, around racial justice, many things. And so does the United States. And also Saudi Arabia had street harassment laws that we don't have here as it relates to gender, right? And so I think that that's just something I gained from that experience that I, um, I very much uh, reject this attitude that there's any country that's better than any other country from like a competition top-down sort of thing. I, I just don't see the world in that way. Um, and I'm more interested in how we can talk about these complexities and nuances um, without saying, oh, well, you know, we have these things to fix here, but we're better than there. That is not the kind of dialogue I like to be caught up in. Um, and I think it's problematic. So, so yeah, I think that if anything, that's the great gift I got from, the, from growing up there is just, um, seeing the world as uh, in its entirety, like kind of beyond borders uh, and about humans and about change and about connection and transformation away from kind of trying to protect any ideals um, that, you know, are better than others or, you know, somehow worse than others more about like, how do we create conditions for everyone in the world to thrive, heal, get support, get resources, um, be interdependent and collaborative. and um, I think I've had to do a lot of work to realize that that might not be how other people have been conditioned. Um, just because um, I find myself in my comfort zone most actually with a lot of the people I grew up with when talking about politics and things like that, because I will still have those moments when even in sort of dialogues around gender justice, which I've focused on, sometimes people will be surprised that they'll say, oh, your perspective much more aligns with that of say African feminists or feminists of the global South than a specific US perspective on XYZ thing. And that makes a lot of sense to me, <laughs> but it might not to people who don't know my story, just by looking at me, they'll say, oh, we expected this lens and it 
sometimes can cause friction for me. It's so helpful for our listeners to get to know more about you. And, and before we get into some of those things where you do some critiquing, which we think is helpful and necessary, especially for those of us who are of the white race and, and, and especially for males, um, we think this is going to be really helpful for us. But before we even get off of that, we'd like to just talk a little bit more about I know in some of the interviews, I've appreciated your sense of openness in, in talking about some of the stage fright that you get before speaking and some of your anxiety. I too struggle with this and have had to learn to accept and even embrace it for what it is. I do a lot of speaking uh, now, as does Michael, and it's just, it's part of who I am. And I know in, in one of your interviews, you said that it taught you to be courageous and to do things anyway. And your goal and mission is so much more important than the fear. And so I know for me, I, I wanted to ask you this. And what are some of the ways that you remain steadfast in your mission? What's been most helpful to you? What carries you through when there are roadblocks or naysayers or voices in your head that tell you that you can't do something? Mm, one, I just want to like honoring you that, that, you know, that you have that, that you're facing that same sort of experience in your life. Right. And I think that it's so great you're speaking about it because I don't think we have a society where, especially with men, right. That they're like able to talk about what it feels like to feel vulnerable and what it means. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of tropes around how black women should show up in the world. Right. And I struggle with some of those stereotypes and how I'm expected to be, right? And also kind of just saying, hey, I'm just a human being trying to make my way in the world and I show up this way and this is who I am and, and I, I can't be contorted into a box and that kind of thing. And so I, I think for me, I kind of have to just live with it. I have to say, wow, I was born this way. Um, this is who I am or this sort of beliefs, values and assumptions I was raised in and the conditioning that I've experienced have led me to have this set of fears, this set of anxieties, this set of sensitivities, this set of strengths and all of those things make me me. But I shouldn't um, attach myself to feelings of shame about them, even if others feel like those are things I should be shameful about. And actually, it's quite revolutionary to have a practice of honoring and embracing those things and um, forgiving those things in myself, even if I've been taught to kind of uh, sweep them under the rug or pretend they're not there. And um, I think for me, it's about disrupting those things and really kind of being willing to, um, to write off or edit out that critique if it comes from, as I've now started naming them, people who aren't credible sources. And that is not, and I don't say that to say it's um, minimizing that, you know, any person's less than because I say a credible source. It's just that they're not a credible source on my life. They're not a credible source on my worth. They're not a credible source on like defining my meaning and purpose because they haven't walked in these shoes. And and that's something I just remind myself when, you know, if I see a nasty comment online or someone says something that feels belittling or minimizing to me, I really have to say, oh, wow, is that really a credible source? And really kind of bring myself back to center. And when I think back to, you know, who would I then consider credible sources and whose advice and who gets to be in the inner circle of those whose uh, credible sorcery I take seriously when they give me feedback, um, it, it actually helps me to be quite clear on what is important and what is uh, nourishing and what is um, foundational to my growth. And then what is also just noise. And 
I try to do that quite tactically. I have, um, and I talked about this on Guy Kawasaki's podcast and he really got a kick out of it, but my parents were really into Colin Powell's rules for leadership to the point where they had these little laminated printouts of them that they had made and would like hand them out to my dates. My husband has his original copy. Um, that was, you know, thrilling slash embarrassing, but then also, um, <laughs> we weren't going to bring this up, but we listened to that interview and we think this is awesome. So thank you for sharing it. Oh my gosh. I mean, I had, when I finally met Colin Powell, I thought, I'm like, I think God wants me to tell him that, you know, in addition to the 10 commandments, I was raised with Colin Powell's rules and I had to go tell him and he's like, are you following these rules? Um, and, you know, a big one I go to a lot is number 12, don't take counsel of your fears or naysayers. Um, another one, you know, for people with anxiety, don't let adverse facts stand in the way of a good decision. That's another one that I think about a lot. Um, you know, he also has this one, avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it. I just learning that before I even got into the workforce was like fundamental. I didn't even understand what my parents were talking about when they would like say like, learn these rules, understand them. And now that I've, you know, been in CEO roles and et cetera, and knowing that I'm like, these really are like, these rules are foundational and they kind of transcend political ideology. And they're just really good rules for how to be a human who's striving to do great things. You know, he says, have a vision and be demanding. I feel that that very much encompasses how I show up in my life. And, and I love that he says, be demanding, right? I think as a woman being demanding, as a black woman who considers myself being demanding, you know, there are people who would describe that demandingness with other words that I won't use on this podcast and who have described that, that with other words. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm demanding. I have a real clear vision for what I think is excellent and what I think is mediocre. And I'm not afraid to say it um, or what I think is subpar, right? But that because I come in this body that's like, you know, less than five, six tall and looks the way that it does, sometimes people are quite bothered by that demandingness. And now I kind of understand, no, that's just leadership. And so I, I really think that, you know, just knowing that other people have been on the path before, looking at roadmaps from my life apprentices, I often talk about that, you know, people like Colin Powell, who, although I'm politically very different than he is, I've learned a lot from through his writing and through his um, way of thinking. Uh, just, you know, and also just really, really learning how to trust in my own inner guidance and voice as a spiritual person. Um, you know, just learning how to turn down the volume on other people's noise. And that's something I really struggle with because I identify as an empathetic person and I'm highly sensitive to other people's energy, other people's pain, all of that, and deeply intuitive. And I've had to do a lot of my work around how to set healthier boundaries to say, hey, I can show up for you and hold space for you without taking on your noise. And I think with those of us who have anxiety around public speaking and things like that, it's really about learning that, that when I have my anxiety about speaking publicly, a lot of times it's because I'm taken in the energy of the room and I'm taken in the energy of someone in the room who had whatever look on their face or whatever distraction they were having with their phone or whatever. And then I create a narrative in my head about how my message will be received or how I'll be judged. And it'll trigger back some past moment of feeling belittled or diminished. And then I have to kind of be like, or I could really tune into 
that place within me that is most powerful, that is closest to God, that is closest to spirit, that is closest to truth, and like turn the turn the volume up on that and turn the volume low on the other thing and then just show up. And I actually do a prayer before I do any of my speaking or any kind of, you know, big thing like that, um, where I will often just say, you know, if, if I can't find the words, like, God, please speak through me. And then whenever I do that, it works. And then if I find myself in an anxiety response, which I have as someone who lives with anxiety too, just like clinically, um, I'll say, oh, my ankles are, sh are shaking. I'm observing that. And I'll be like, please, God, send strength to my ankles. Send strength to my stomach. That hurts right now. Um, send a knowledge to my heart that you will never leave me alone. And somehow I uh, get there, or even just as simple as this simple prayer, which is, please, you know, put an angel or ancestor of protection above me, below me, on either side of me to carry me through this. And it always works. Mm -hmm. It always works. And I've also found too, and, and this actually ties into our work as someone to tell to, is just having people who are always going to stand in your corner that you could get up, uh, whether it's on stage or it's, it's writing something that's more public or whatever it might be, dealing with something that's more controversial, that you always have people that are going to be in your corner no matter what. And you could, you could literally jump off a cliff and they're going to, they're going to jump with you or they're going to be there to catch you when you fall. Uh, that is just, it, it's invaluable. I mean, that's how our mission actually began with my relationship with Michael doing exactly that for me. And it's just evolved. And now we connect with a lot of people around the world who they're in that place where they feel isolated and alone in, in that space of anxiety or whatever it might be. And they just need, for lack of a better phrase, someone to tell to, someone to be, mm. be with them in, in those those moments. So yeah, thanks a lot for just talking about that. I know it's helpful for me and I'm sure I have no doubt it's gonna be helpful for our listeners as well as, as people, uh, you know, just, are, are learning to be more confident in who the, who we would say God's created us to be. So. Yes. Yes. And it's, I love that someone to tell it to, you know, I think I was, I read an article um, just a couple of days ago that really got me in my gut, you know, in something you just see yourself in it, right. You see something you haven't been able to voice and it was about reciprocal nurturing. And it was a black woman writing about how she felt that black women in a lot of organizations were, um, became nurturers and were nurturers to other people in their community, but weren't getting that mercy and empathy back. And that's been an ongoing trend I've seen in my life that has caused me a lot of hurt. And I haven't talked about a lot beyond my closest people, but to have someone write about it really felt freeing to me. And it was like a someone to tell it to, right? That I'm like, ah, oh, the sister is talking about something that I have cried about so much or that I've talked about in therapy to say, like, I'm just like wanting a shred of the mercy I give others, a shred of the empathy I give others. And wouldn't it be even better if I got all I give <laughs> from others too, even more? And, and why does it feel so hard to get that shred, right? And, and I think it was about, you know, having someone to tell it to, to be able to say, oh, you know, even though I don't know this person who wrote the piece, her writing it somehow freed it to, to have me think like, oh, this is a person I could talk to about this, that there's someone out there walking this path. And not that you would want someone to be experiencing the same kind of struggle you have in the world, but to know like someone else was able to air this out 
And so it means that you're not walking alone in your experience. So I think what you're doing is really important because I think so much of, um, so much of the pain that we experience in the world is about and around feeling alone. And so much of the harm that is done is around making people feel like they are isolated and alienated and alone. And, um, and I think it's imperative. It saves lives for people to have someone to talk to. I, I, I lost someone who, um, whose work I'd been following and supporting for years um, just a couple days ago, Daisy Coleman, who was a, a survivor of rape when she was in high school um, and started her own nonprofit and co-founded it with other survivors, um, ended up um, passing away and dying suicide this week. And many of us are mourning her. Um, and I know that there were many other times when she felt that she had been alone and people who she was able to connect with helped bring her back in this time. Unfortunately, it didn't happen, but I've been thinking a lot about that, that what does it mean that, you know, this terrible thing that happened to her, this terrible brutality that she experienced made this 23 year old woman um, feel so alone, so distraught and so in pain um, that she would end her own life. And, um, and so I've just been thinking a lot about what is it that we can do, those of us who care to change our culture so that no one would ever feel that kind of pain, that they couldn't live anymore, um, that they could not have peace. Um, so I, I remember, actually remember, I, I saw that, I saw the news about that, about her death. And um, I'm really sorry that, um, that you lost someone. Thank you. And that, and that she had to experience what she experienced. Um, and um, just, it, it is very sad. And why do you think that you or any of us who are, we hope are empathetic, empathetic sensitive, gracious, kind, uh, don't all, often or always receive the same thing back in return? Can you mm. dissect that at all? Do you have some theories or, uh, you know, some understanding as to what that's about, because I think that I, I, Tom and I could probably say that we both felt that mm. uh, as well, you know, because we're, we're, we, the work that we're about is, is about empathy and, 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 and kindness and listening. And well, we, we um, encounter a world of people who aren't very good listeners <laughs> and, and we, we see a lot of a lack of empathy uh, around us and, and in the headlines. And what do you think that's about? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that is a thing I grapple with a lot and it takes a lot of my sort of bandwidth that I still am working through, right, around kind of, I think that, that like my deepest inner child is still trying to figure that out, right? It's like one of the big existential questions for me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's almost like I get letters from kids a lot around my children's books and they'll be like, racism is so dumb. I don't understand why adults do this, right? And I and it's fundamental, and I'm fundamentally agree with that, right? That they're just like, this makes no sense. It's dumb. And why, right? I think, and it, it comes to me in the same sort of way of like my inner child just being like, wow, what, like why, why is it that there are people who choose to be cruel to others, to dominate others, to um, withhold compassion when they could choose love, when they could choose kindness, when they could choose beauty and joy versus struggle, right? Like to me, it just makes no sense in the most fundamental, most pure, earnest way, right? And yet we see and experience the opposite of that. And then you find the people who, and I've had this experience a lot, 
very much resent you for being kind, for being loving, for being empathetic, for various reasons. You know, one reason might be that they actually don't believe because of their hurt, their trauma, that it's actually possible. So they think you must be fraudulent um, if that is who you are, that it just actually can't be true. Or they believe that somehow your kindness, your goodness, your empathy um, makes them look bad. And so they need to diminish it and somehow prove your fraudulence by trying to get you to reflect back their bad actions. And so for me, it's something I, I very much uh, identify with and think about. Um, I have found myself to be a really sort of fierce friend to others who I see this happening to. You know, um, I see my husband as a person like us in that way, a very empathic, loving, soulful, beautiful person. And I rage when I see other people not holding that with the grace that it deserves. And yet he rages when he sees that in me. And we are both kind of like, why can't you do that same kind of raging on your own behalf <laughs> or see what you see when other people are extending it to me and you're ready to go into the, as a gladiator, why don't you do that for yourself? Right. And so I also wonder, you know, what are, what is the psychological toll on a spirit when you keep facing this pattern again and again and again? And for me, that has been the work, right? That is the work I'm currently doing right now. And I think some of it is you get messages, you know, so that there's all these like different TED talks and things about resilience and grit and all of that. And I'm really careful about that because I think in some ways it is teaching young people that, oh, you know, to be empathetic means that you're somehow weak or to be compassionate means that you're somehow weak or to be kind means that you're somehow not strong. When in fact, I want to talk more about like, oh, what does it mean to be a healer? What does it mean to be a transformer? What does it mean to be um, fiercely graceful? Um, and what does it mean to be a catalyst of change? Um, someone who's able to stand up in truth and know that, you know, that might leave you isolated, but that there's a beauty in that. Um, and I'm really trying to do that work of embracing that myself, but also reflecting it back for young people, because I want the next generation to learn it less painfully than I have been. And then also earlier on to say, you know, for some of the things that actually make you the most beautiful, the things that make you the most caring and loving, or, and in some spaces might make you feel the most alone are actually your superpowers. They're actually the things that help others and other people might not reflect those things back to you. They may also be afraid to stand with you for all the reasons that you're afraid, right? Um, and that um, part of our task is to learn to do those things anyway and hope that in doing that, it'll inspire others to be courageous and that you'll find those people just like you two found each other, right? Like, I feel like, oh, it took me a lot of like painful relationships with people who didn't necessarily reflect back my giving and reciprocity, reciprocitous nurturing, as we talked about. Um, it took a lot of that for me to finally find it in my life partner and me thinking about, oh, what is it that I had to disrupt in myself to actually realize, oh, you, your job and role isn't just to be taken from or to be used or to be a vessel of giving. You also have a role in receiving and that that is also a a part of your power and a part of what is valuable and good for you too. And I, I think that's the thing we all have to grapple with. That's those of us who are healers in this life, as I like to see it, um, 
become quite accustomed and comfortable with being in that role of overgiving. And it can be really hard to accept from others. And I think that's what I, I struggle with a lot. Um, and so I still don't have the answer to that question because it's something that, you know, sometimes I'll just wake up and weep about it and just be like, how do people treat people this way? Or how could someone speak to me in such a way? I would never speak to someone in that way. And my work is to really truly understand with every fiber of my being, and I haven't gotten there yet, that it has nothing to do with me, that those projections are not toxicity that I need to absorb. It doesn't mean anything about me. And yet I've had to ask myself why, why it is that I came to believe that those things have to uh, do with me and that you know comes from culture or trauma um, or systemic inequities and all of those things um, are part of the reason why I do the work I do, right? To kind of reverse those dynamics. If those conditions were different, we wouldn't have these sort of attitudes normalized, these sort of behaviors normalized. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wondersfound or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. So is your husband in your, your tiny apartment with you right now hearing these things? We hope so. <laughs> he was. So he was here um, just a few minutes ago, but he just went outside. Um, he usually takes his daily walk around this time now during the pandemic. Um, but he, he was here. And, you know, and I think it's so funny because I feel like, you know, having someone like him in my life is really, really special because he's taught me so much about love that um, he's just such a kind and generous and forgiving person. And I thought I was all those things, but I, I believe he is more of those things than I am. Um, and that has been really interesting for me that I learn a great deal about him. I mean, I started a fight we had yesterday and he apologized to me when I woke up this morning and I was kind of like, the fight we're going to have right now is that actually that was my fight to take accountability for, but I love you for finding your role and kind of, you know, meeting me there, right? Um, and taking responsibility for that. But really that was on me. And I think that um, it's just also taught me to be a better friend for my friends who I see kind of caught up in the cycles I used to be in to say, you know, hold out for your true match. You can find a match for your heart. You don't have to um, try to be there to fix anybody else's heart. That's not what you have to do. You don't have to be what you wish other people would become. There's a person out there for you or people out there for you who are just as loving or more so just as thoughtful, just as caring and empathetic. Um, well, you might have to share this episode with them because I'm sure those words would be like gold to them. Because I know when our wives do that for us, it means the world to us, honestly. Oh, so. that's so lovely. 
Yeah, we'd love to transition a little bit, though, to talk a, to talk about some of the things that you're involved in right now. And um, I'm going to transition by, by sharing a quote from Rosa Parks. Mm. And she said that memories of our lives, of our works, and our deeds will continue in others. Mm. And the reason I wanted to share that quote as a transition is there was an article in the New York Times recently about the passing of John Lewis. Yes. Uh, somebody that we all love and respect. And, uh, and many of the things that you just described about your husband uh, is probably well represented in, in who John Lewis was. And in this article was entitled, Why John Lewis Kept Telling the Story of Civil Rights, Even Though It Hurt. And for those who are listening in the article, the author writes that John Lewis served in Congress since 1987, representing Georgia in the House of Representatives, but his, in, but his constituents were far from all the longtime legislator, legislator who died on Friday at age 80 represented. Lewis was a witness to, participant in, and survivor of some of the most pivotal moments of the American Civil Rights Movement. He gave a speech at the 1963 March on Washington. He marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama in 1965. He took part in more recent acts of resistance. In a movement in which so many great lights were extinguished early, his longevity left him to serve as a de facto spokesperson for what he saw. And uh, it just goes on to talk about how he kept retelling his story and you've talked about the importance of telling the story of the civil rights movement over and over and over again, and how it affects the people who hear it. But how does telling that story again and again affect you? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think I, th I thought I think about that a lot, you know, in relationship to my late mother and how she would often tell me these stories when I was younger, but then tell them to me as I got older and I was able to understand different layers of things, like tell me the story again with added layers. And I've learned about the importance of that because one, it keeps the memories alive of those who did the work and it keeps this next generation understanding the idea that we have to continue with the fight that, you know, you've got to stay vigilant. You can't just kind of let go and uh, hope that the gains will just continue, that you have to continue to do the work. But I also think it was also about honoring the people who've done the work before you so that you are also mindful of the fact that you're doing work now for people you may never meet, but you whose lives you honor and whose lives you believe um, should be afforded of dignity and liberty and equality. And um, I think that's a big part of why of the telling the story. I also think, you know, I, I think a lot about the nar African-American narrative tradition and storytelling being so important um, historically for us to pass things down, especially when um, reading and writing was forbidden in terms of slavery in this country and, and what it meant to pass down stories through ancestors to make sure that familial history and lineage was not lost. And um, I think that that, you know, is also seen in call and response in freedom songs and in church songs and in the repetition. I mean, that was, I wrote a paper in grad school about how Barack Obama, if you really look at his um, early speeches, in the beginning in his first campaign run, you hear the oration pattern of what happens in the black church. Um, you see the repetition, you see the, um, the songs in, in the oration and it's really beautiful. And that to me harkened back to that, that narrative tradition of just like knowing who your people are, knowing where they came from, knowing where you're going and connection to those stories. And so I, I saw a lot of that in John Lewis and, um, 
and in that tradition and also being black and from the South originally, just feeling like he, you know, reminded me of my uncles and my aunties and my, my parents and my grandparents and, and the way they would tell me the stories. I also just think back to how I remember getting shouted down at an event once by some young people who differed with me on an approach for something. And I can't, I don't, you can't even remember what it was, but also having this moment of thinking like, oh, I'm getting challenged now. This is really interesting that like, I'm now at this point where I'm getting challenged by people I agree with on 99.9% things, but there's something different. And what does it mean to have that in our movements? And I remember um, being really upset about the critique because I was thinking, oh, they're just not understanding where I'm coming from, et cetera, et cetera. And my mom just thinking, but oh, remember when you were really young and when you kind of first got into some of this and you were thinking only in terms of certain binaries and not necessarily the complicated nuances of some of these things, like have some compassion for where it's coming from. But at the end of the day, you know, think about the heroes you've had who maybe you might have disagreed with how they saw some of the binaries, but because now you know all their complexities, you would hold them in esteem because of the summation of the works they did in their life. And she said, like, think about someone like John Lewis, you're going to measure the man in terms of a life of work. And so... I think that a lot about him telling the stories, right? That that was a story told to me about him, right? That like, oh yeah, you're going to have these leaders you're following and they're going to do and say and think a lot of things and evolve and grow. And you could judge them on each thing and whether or not you agree with each thing or align 100% with each thing. But it's really important to kind of think of a legacy of work and the core values and the the trajectory and what that meant. And so for me, because she said that to me, you know, and because she said kind of like, be a John Lewis, you know, in the, in the sense of that was a story I got, like, you know, be, be someone who, when they're talking about you at your obituary, that the conversation is about a trajectory of work, no matter what you're doing, you know, whether or not you were like working on a farm or you were leading a protest or you were a representative what would be the core values that they would say about the totality of your life? That is something that stuck with me and him and the, and the storytelling around that, that movement, that he, the movement changed its face and form in many different ways, but the values and how he showed up for it were always there. And the way that he talked about it and the way he talked about his family and his beliefs about humanity, his beliefs about abundance and um, resources for everyone. And joy, you know, I, when I think of John Lewis's life, I think of that beautiful video of him dancing to happy and, you know, <laughs> that's what I think about, you know, the sacrifices he's made and Bloody Sunday, I mean, that will never also leave my mind. But what I think about is, wow, this is a man who has seen so much, given so much, like had so, would understandably have had complete right to just say, I've done enough, like you all do the rest of the work until his dying day had hope for us, had grace, had love, had gratitude, you know, just his love for Barack Obama, like all of that was just so beautiful. I think um, just the storytelling for me, for him, wasn't even just the stories he told. It was like the story of his life. The story of his life is just such an example for us. If each of us could have those values in whatever we do, um, we would all do better for the world. Part of the reason we wanted to ask that question is because people have asked us, do you ever get tired of hearing someone's story? Like, especially if they have told it over and over and over again. 
And our response in all honesty and in all seriousness has always been if people would have truly listened the first time or the second time, maybe they wouldn't have had to keep repeating it. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. And I think about, you know, and it's also because you all are doing such important work about learning about deep listening, right? When you hear a story over and over and over again, you actually hear something different every time. Um, you know, part of it I think is, and I've just been writing about this recently, so it's in my mind, this idea of the Moravian principle and, you know, this like that your nonverbal tells you a lot more than the actual words about what someone's saying or thinking. And Sometimes when I've heard a story over and over, I'll say, what am I, what am I hearing and seeing in them? What am I seeing in their energy, their body, their facial expressions? What is that telling me? Um, but then also as an editor, you know, as an editor of books, I learn a lot by seeing how different people tell the same story um, to different audiences or in different ways in their writing. And it tells me a lot about the author. And there will be some times where I'll say, oh, I notice when you write for an academic audience, you are like this, but when you're writing for this other audience, you're like this, and this sounds more like who you are when I talk to you, who you are in real time. And can we talk about like how to get that in alignment, like who you are and the voice you're comfortable with writing on the page, right? And so like that idea of finding one's voice, as they say, um, or identifying your voice. So I think it's, there's a lot of value in hearing the same story over and over. And then, like you said, too, just that humans don't tend to listen really well. So it usually takes at least three times for the message <laughs> to get heard like half-heartedly. Um, and we need to hear repetition, which is why, you know, the pundits do it so well on TV shows where you'll hear them say the same talking point three different ways over and over and over um, to solidify a message. You, you mentioned voice and you know, one of our core principles is that we believe everyone has the voice that deserves and needs to be heard. Doesn't mean we agree with the voice. It doesn't mean that, you know, that all of it resonates with us, but, but, it's, but we each have a voice and we each need to tell our story. And so often we find that, that people are not allowed to tell their stories that their stories are you know, seen as insignificant or they're, they're not the right story that's supposed to be told. They, they, and I think we've probably all experienced that where we've, we've had our voices sometimes diminished because, because of you know, public opinion or be, you know, because of you know, others don't agree with it or don't, or don't like it or don't want it to be told, whatever the stories are to be told. And you know, part of our part of our goal is is to allow people to tell their stories because mm. it is in the telling that truths can come out, that healing can begin, that hope can be found. We believe, and um, and we can all learn that we're not alone, mm. and uh, you know, in our own stories. So uh, we we just applaud you know th th that you know, that, that those who believe that too, that stories need to be told. I so love that. Over and over again until they're actually heard. Mm. <laughs> until they're actually heard. And when people aren't here to tell their stories, you know, I think that's the thing of like, you know, having lost people I love, you know, there's just, 
so many things that you find out and you, know, you find out things about your loved ones when they've left and you thought, Oh, I talked to them about a great many things. And then you find out something else and you think, Oh, I wish I could really ask them about that. I, I, I was reading an article that popped up cause I keep a Google, um, sort of a Google, uh, alert on my late mom and something came up recently and I thought, well, you know, she's no longer with us. So how did this come up? And it was a poem that my mom had written in a geometry class that ended up in a book um, that had won some national award in the 60s and I'd never heard about it and found myself sending it to my dad and other people. And then my dad was able to track down one of my mom's friends who said, oh yeah, I remember Frida writing that poem and getting recognition in school and all of that. But me really thinking, oh, I wish I had heard, I wish I'd heard that story. I wish I had known about it. And she talked so much about that time in her life, right? But that was just one of the stories I never heard. So it made me think about too, even the people who do have done a good job of sharing their stories with us still hold so many stories that when, when they pass away, they take with them. So now I really have a more of a mindfulness about really wanting to sit down with folks and especially people I know who, you know, maybe transitioning or sooner, we know that that might happen to really make sure that we get those stories now because there's so much I want to ask of people who've departed and, um, you know, and sometimes the stories want to come out at inconvenient times. I was thinking about my late grandmother and she made one of my friends cry at my wedding. We were getting our makeup done in the uh, morning before my wedding. And you know, there were a lot of people there. I had 15 bridesmaids, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> that people were always like, what? Um, and we had a lot of people to get their makeup done before this. And, um, my grandmother was still kind of dealing a little bit with dementia at that time, but one of the my friends had figured out that my grandmother had, you know, been at Tuskegee at the time and had taught some Tuskegee Airmen how to swim when she was on a sports uh, scholarship there, and asked her that. But in the course of the story, my grandmother went from telling her that story to sort of having a flashback and then thinking that this was a white person saying something negative to her and yelled at this person because she thought she'd said a slur, but that's not what she said. And my friend cried and it was a really kind of painful experience. And I remember just saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And like for this happening for the wedding, this is such an awkward experience. And my friend just like in the midst of the tears saying, no, I kind of really understand it. And I kind of think that despite this kind of ugly thing that happened that obviously caused, she had so much pain associated with just like, race at that time and how white people addressed her then that, that brought her to that place that wouldn't just by seeing me, but just like getting the story of her life and being able to hear about that time in her life was still really valuable, even though it became this like really combative, painful episode for everyone. And um, it's something I'll never forget because I thought, oh yeah, that was not convenient. You know, I, I wouldn't have if I were designing the day of one's wedding, right? Have wanted that to be what happened at all. But now I learned stories that I never knew. And I learned about trauma she had that I had not ever had a chance to talk about that just got triggered that morning, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't convenient, but it was real and it was true. And both of us will never forget it now. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking about that in relation to John Lewis. And I'm thinking about this idea of storytelling and I know we've quoted Martin Luther King uh, in our second book when he, he had said that true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a, to a beggar. It mm -hmm. comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And I'm curious, where, where do you see the parallel between 
listening to stories and and the fact that people keep telling them perhaps because the restructuring is not occurring and and i'm seeing a parallel there and also i i'd like for you just to talk a little bit about what what do you see needs restructuring right now um you know the the primary issues that need restructuring yes i think you know it's, it's so interesting he just had i mean i think that's the thing too there's so many really important words from Arthur King that do not get amplified or um, reiterated or told um, in the way that they should. And I've been really excited about how Bernice King, particularly his daughter, has been really vocal about how she wants her father's true positions and framed with his perspective and not sort of a characterization of his perspectives or an interpretation that serves other people's agendas, but like his actual perspectives and how that storytelling is so important because he had a really clear vision about what should be reformed. And that was poverty, inequity, systemic inequality, and her call to not sanitize that to say, oh, he was actually quite clear. Like, let's remember when he was murdered um, so tragically, he was marching on behalf of workers, sanitation workers, right? And he was, vehemently anti-war and all of those were values around moving from away from a place of dehumanization and violence and corruption and um moving toward a place of love and collaboration resources uh, distributed um more equally and fairly to um, the whole rather than just a small few. And all of those things are extremely important. So for me, I think one, the, the nor part of why I work in the spaces of publishing and media is because I feel that one of the places we really need to reform is culture. And the way that we reform culture is by changing who gets to shape it and who has ownership of it. And we have to understand the economics of who has ownership of publishing and media, but then also um, have to change the story of how that shapes who gets voice and who gets platform and who gets to decide who's other, who else's voices are included and amplified and lifted up. And that's been one intervention and reformation that I think is extremely important and a place where we need justice. And I think economic justice is extremely important because it impacts everything, you know, that it impacts gender, it impacts race, it impacts healthcare disparities we have in this country, it impacts uh, everything, it impacts international policy. And so those are really important to me. And then I also think um, social emotional learning in our education system are extremely important. You know, I, everyone talks about STEM and I think it's extremely important to talk about STEM and making sure that STEM is equal. But I also think, wow, if we really kind of put the kind of resources and amplification of what it means to fund equality and STEM into funding social emotional education that taught empathy in schools, which in other countries um, that it is in integrated into its public curriculum, uh, that we would have some real impact on a variety of different indicators that we need change in in our culture related to um, social justice related to community engagement related to healthcare related to environmental practices and um, human behavior etc so there's just so much that needs healing and i think that what i think is an opportunity right now because i don't want to say that i think covid 19 is a good thing because i do not but i think that what is presented as a result of the oracle that is covid is this opportunity to say oh okay covid just dismantled a whole lot so now that we rebuild 
maybe we don't want to rebuild a structure that's faulty or kind of ridden with termites, you know, now that we want to rebuild, we want to rebuild a structure that actually works for us that um, is innovative, is transformative, that includes everyone, isn't going to leave some of us out in the cold, that's going to keep everyone warm. Um, and, and that's what I want to see. That's the kind of change I want to see. We, uh, we agree that this is a time that is rich and ripe for rebuilding and rebuilding in a new way mm. and not in the old ways that we can't go back to the, ever, the way, though many of us would prefer, and there are a lot of people who would prefer or say they prefer when it's just back to the way it was, but we realize it, it can't and it won't. And, but that's not, that's not bad that what, what can be, can be so much better. And that's, that's our hope. And that's absolutely our prayer, that that's yes. what we can do with this. Yeah. Um, we recently read an article about the uh, Reverend James Lawson, who uh, had worked with Martin Luther King to train young civil rights peacemakers to fight racism with love and respect. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Reverend Lawson is now 91 years of age. So he's able to look back on nearly a century of, of, of experience and, and experience, you know, and, and life. And he said um, that what now, what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter, that, that so many people are calling it the, the wrong word. First of all, they're calling it a protest. And he said that, that that's focusing on the wrong thing, that, mm -hmm. that protest, he said, is such a bad term because all these marches and walks are calling the United States to a new way of life. Mm. You know, they're calling uh, for the dismantling of the old forms of racist violence that we've taken for granted and replacing them with new forms of kinship mm. that will allow us to be a far stronger nation and a better people. What are your thoughts on, on what he said? Yeah, you know, I think really the first time it was ever kind of formed to me uh, and, you know, and inspired to me the message of it's really important if anytime you're showing up for any demonstration or calling to action, framing it from a place of what are we for is always stronger and always more transformative than um, focusing on what is broken. And it's not to say that we're not going to name what is broken and what needs to be fixed because it's really important to know what's broken in order to build something new or to change it. But sometimes we get mired in what is broken to the point where we aren't able to see past it to envision something new, something better, something transcendent. And so for me, I often like to talk about in terms of what, what I'm for, what is the vision, what is the whole versus the none. Um, and I think that that is so much of what comes out of what, what these Black Lives Matter demonstrations have meant to me. You know, when I saw the demonstrations um, in my neighborhood, just organically seeing the ones outside one day sitting here, you know, at my desk and then hearing Black Lives Matter outside my window and looking at it and seeing mostly white neighbors in my neighborhood with signs saying Black Lives Matter, that was important to me. That was a what are we for moment. That was a wow, these are human beings who are in the middle of COVID-19 pandemic, standing up for justice, standing up for love. Um, and, you know, for me, I think 
the last time I had actually like had something rouse me to my feet that I heard sort of a noise outside and was called to the window was during Good Friday when we would have the Catholic processions in my neighborhood march with the crosses and they would chant and sing. And so it was almost kind of like a religious experience to see that, to say, you know, oh, this is the last time that, you know, something has brought me to my feet to want to be a part of it, to be it, to see it. Um, and so it, it is, it's really about, you know, the, the communion, I think, that comes from being together to say we're all in this together. We're not going to rest until all of us are cared for, supported, and get what we need. And, and that's what I love about a good protest, right? That's when I think about, and that's why I was crying because I, you know, was not in a good health place to be able to be marching, um, was because I get so much energy from seeing so many people who are saying we wanted to do things differently, we can do things differently. There's a lot that we don't have, but what we have is each other. That's ostensibly the message. I mean, even if the march is five people, right? You got four other people who were in it with you. And some of the most powerful marches I have seen have been those sorts of um, smaller protests or, you know, just even um, some smaller sort of demonstrations I've been a part of where, you know, we would just go out and pray like in front of a building. Um, I, I've done that a couple of times, you know, just meditating, um, big meditative um, and like interfaith prayer sit-ins, which are silent, but palpable power, right? Of just like, we are all coming here together to give energy. Um, the day before the Women's March, I did a spiritual event with a bunch of interfaith folks and um, it was me, my friend Morley, who's this amazing singer and healer, Marianne Williamson, um, just Carrie Kelly, who does a lot of great work in the yoga space, and Lisa Bloom, who is a lawyer. You know, it was just all these different people coming together, but to say, we're going to come to this church right now and have a spiritual event to bless the big, which we didn't know that day that was going to become the largest march in recorded history. We didn't know that um, that was going to happen the next day. But we're going to actually just like have a bunch of people of faith, different religions come together and just pray and talk about spirit and why spirit has brought us here to say that we have a vision for this country and a vision for the world that is different than the current agenda that we're living in and that we're experiencing. And, you know, a lot of people critiqued um, the Women's March at that time because they said, oh, you know, there's too many things they're calling for right? There's, you know, what is this about? But that was the beauty of it. Like you said about, it's not just a protest. The beauty was they were saying, we see a tie, a thread that connects those of us who are marching for immigrant justice. We see a thread with those of us who are marching for climate change. Those of us who are marching for gender. Those of us who are marching for racial justice. Those of us who are marching to stop children from being caged at the border. All of those things are connected because they are about humanity. They are about dignity. They're about the ties that bind us as humans, right? And so for me, that's what I like about the what are we for? Because we have gotten away from this idea of understanding that it's actually quite simple, that we have all these different policies that we talk about that makes us think that things are about these single issues, but they're not. And, you know, the Black feminist scholar, Audre Lorde, who, you know, I see as a great literary foremother has taught me a great deal in her writing, said that we don't live single issue lives. So why are we pushing for single issue fixes for policy. It actually makes no sense. Um, even though 
our heads are taught <laughs> that that makes all the sense. Um, There's an awful lot that needs restructuring. Yes. We're uh, sadly, our time's probably winding down here, but we do have a, uh, just a couple more questions for you um, that I think would be really helpful for, for Michael and I and for our, our group of listeners. One is for those of us who are not persons of color or female or who cannot truly understand or feel the institutional barriers of true equality, what would you like to say to us to help us be more aware, more sensitive, mm. or inclusive? Well, thank you for that question. I think asking that question is a really important one. So I think, you know, for, for in terms of being courageous, I have appreciated the people in my life who have come to me to say, you know, um, in our relationship, what are the things that you need? How can I be of support to you? You know, but in a, in a, in a genuine way, you know, not in a way that requires labor for me, but just in a way that like, how can I show up for you in my power and my privilege in a deeper way? And what I've asked some of the white people in my family that are closest to me to do, like my husband and, you know, um, my other really close beloveds is to read my friend Layla Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy. It is a workbook and it has a day-by-day -day guide of what to do. It can be done in community or it can be done by yourself of things that you can do. And it has been really important and healing for me to see the journey that my husband and other people in our community have been on. And they're doing it together. And as a part of the work, they're not really supposed to be discussing with me like how they're feeling about all the things that are coming up. Um, I see them like texting and things like that. So I know what's happening, but um, they're working it out together and working out their own um, experiences and the hard truths of what it feels like to have some of these things unearthed in a way that people who are living this experience just know because we've had to, you know, I was called the N word the first time when I was six years old, it changed my life. But there are other people who haven't had to have that kind of awakening um, yet. Um, and, and so now here's the opportunity to, to have that, um, to do that work. And, it, and I think the, that her book really lays out well how to do it in um, important, impactful and healthy ways in a number of vantage points in your life. And then I also think that our, we underestimate the power of using um, our voices to advocate on behalf of those who might not have the privilege to speak up in spaces where we can. And I think that's important. And if you have a checkbook that would allow you to be able to um, donate to support other people doing the work who are directly impacted to support the leadership of those who don't get the lion's share of funding. And so, you know, one real tangible thing is to support organizations led by black and brown women who get such a small fraction of uh, the charitable funding in the nonprofit space specifically. Those are organizations who've in most cases been doing the work for the longest with the least amount of resources and institutional support. So one really tactical thing could be if you have money or you know people who have it. And when I say money, I'm saying, you know, if you have $25 to give, but you can organize other people with $25 to give to do it, do it. Um, one of my friends asked, you know, what could she do? What organization did I think she could help? And she runs a really amazing yoga studio and has a podcast and a platform. And I just said, whoa, fund higher heights for America. They are mobilizing black women's political leadership. Can't think of a better time <laughs> to invest in an organization like higher heights. And every day is a good time to invest in that. But like right now, 
such an amazing opportunity to help support that work, right? And so she said, oh, that, that's great. And then I got an email just like a couple days later, $500 to higher heights and told other people about it, right? And I think, I think that's just really important. And I can just say, as someone who runs a nonprofit, I've had a couple of people in the past few months send gifts to my nonprofit. Um, in honor of my leadership and in honor of the leadership of others in the organization. And that has been the balm to keep me going during this really difficult time to say, whew, okay, you know, COVID-19 has other ideas about our uh, sustainability <laughs> or <laughs> we have these, you know, um, policy issues that we have to fight and we have all these other structural barriers, but to know that people are investing in our leadership, <sighs> That, that helps us go on another day. That helps me know my staff can see another day doing their important work. So those are two tangible things that I think um, are really important. And then like what you're doing, you know, having a podcast, speaking about the issues you care about, creating our own media. People complain about the media all the time. And I think it's really important to say, yes, we need to have media justice movements to reform our media and to make it more just for all. But we also do have the power to shape our own conversations too, and to flex our power. My husband and I just wrote an opera for Brianna Taylor together. Um, he's a musician and wanted to give back. And he uh, dropped a whole pandemic album with his home studio and donated the proceeds to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund on Juneteenth. So he was able to use his strengths to give back. And you know, he did that as a white man in this country who you know, knows more about, I think, sort of the experiences that I endure as a black woman just because he lives with me, but still is shielded from so much because of his power and privilege, but was able to say, okay, what is it that I can do within my power? Okay, I can, I have music, I have art, I have a platform with my followers, I'll drop this album and, and the community really rose to that occasion. So I'm just sharing all those examples to say too that Think about what it is you have in your community. Um, if you belong to a church or a religious group and you can help set the agenda for their charitable giving, like have those conversations about what you can do. My church has been doing amazing things and I just feel so supported there in this moment because my church talks about how they value everyone. We talk about how we are supporting the most marginalized communities every day and how that's a part of our ministry, right? So I just think we all have a role to play and thinking about how best we can show up with our strengths and our resources is the best way to do it. Your husband's pretty fortunate in that, this episode. You're really going to have to share this with him. You're giving him a couple shout outs, which is fantastic. Thank you. Thank um. you. He's so good to me. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing. I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh, you don't have to post about this thing or that thing I'm doing. And I just feel like, he is one of those people I get like just feel such is such a blessing in my life. I think the only thing I would want to have changed is I wish we could have met each other sooner um, in our lives, right? Because he's just been such a blessing to me. I just want to make one quick comment before I allow Michael to ask the last question here. We're really sure. excited to ask this last one. Um, but uh, I think uh, it's just coming full circle back to what we had mentioned earlier in the interview of, of being uncomfortable. And I think we we just need to strive at times to be uncomfortable, uh, to, to not always, maybe even this summer, I'm thinking of myself not reading so many novels, or mm. maybe it means reading. I'm in the midst of, of, of a, just a really helpful resource right now. 
um, called The Warmth of Other Suns. And it's been so meaningful for me to read. Uh, It's been stretching me in a lot of ways. And I know Michael just recently watched uh, the the movie Just Mercy, and I finished Mm -hmm. that book as well. And so I I think it's just encouraging all of us to just um, maybe not be drawn so much to our comfort, but to to our, our discomfort. Yes. I mean, that is, that is really it, right? That that's where the growth lies and it's so not comfortable. I'm going to remember this conversation in the next couple of weeks. I have some uncomfortable things that need to happen and, you know, I'm going to remember, Hey, walk your talk Jamia, because like your growth is not going to come from hiding from your light, from cowering down from, I mean, you know, one thing I've learned is sometimes people want to keep you where you are because they don't want you to outgrow who you've become to them. And, you know, I I often think of this uh, Alice Walker quote about how no one is your friend who doesn't allow your growth, right? And so for me, I have struggled with that, you know, that, oh, you know, there've been people who, I remember a former classmate was really upset because he said, oh, you know, when we were younger, you had this political belief and now you have this one and I feel betrayed. And I remember just thinking like, you know, that's not really my my issue right now. I'm not going to hold on to that because I can still care about that issue and put my focus on this issue because of who I am right now. And I don't need to kind of stay where you needed me to be to feel comfortable. So I'm going to take our own advice (laughs) next time because that's the thing that I'm really trying to live into to kind of say, yeah, like, humans, we really don't like to suffer. And we learn at an early age, you don't touch the hot things because you might burn your hand. And yet a lot of where we learn and grow and stretch in this life comes with sacrifice. And it comes with, um, it comes with the real reckoning of who we are. And sometimes our failures and mistakes are the things that lead us to the light. So um, I'm just, I'm really taking that in and thank you for the opportunity to kind of talk have that conversation with myself right now as I'm. You <laughs> well, know, if you ever need someone to tell it to, we know of, of, of a, a valuable organization that yes. uh, support you anytime. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. So one more question, and I hope this sure. is the question you're talking about, Tom. Um, <laughs> um, by the time this podcast uh, airs, yes, you will have a woman who will be nominated for the vice presidency of the United States. It won't be the first time there's been a woman nominated in that position or for the presidency, but um, there will be, there will be a woman who is nominated Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it depends what you read or what, what you hear. She may be a person of color, a black woman in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, What does that say to you? Uh, as a black woman, to have um, a person like you, who is nominated for the second highest position in this land, and when we've had never had a woman in that position, nor nor a woman of color, so close, so close to the top. 
I mean, I, it's time, you know, so I think I'm having a lot of feelings. I think it's funny because I thought a lot about when I called my late, my now late grandmother, my other grandmother's still with us and is 98, but the other grandmother that I'm speaking of lived to be in her late nineties, mid to late nineties. And I remember calling her when Barack Obama became president and I was literally dancing in the streets. I was dancing in union square. When we heard the news, I ran out and I had a dress. I had participated in a fashion show that was themed around Barack Obama from the store called Goldwater that makes eco-sustainable clothes. And they made me um, Obama earrings. So I had Obama earrings on and an Obama dress. And I ran out in my Obama dress and Obama earrings screaming into Union Square to this impromptu dance party that happened. And people were climbing onto the top of the subway um, there was like an apparatus where like on top of subway stuff, climbing up there, putting up flags and cheering and dancing. And it was total mayhem. And I remember calling my grandmother as I was a part of that saying, grandma, oh my God, did you ever think almost 90 years ago that you would see this? And I, I don't know what I expected, but you know, I'm out there wearing Obama clothes and dancing and thinking, I never thought that I would see a black president. And I was still so young. I think I was 28. And my grandma was like, yeah, I thought about how it's about time. It's about time. This should have happened forever ago. And so, yes, it's important, but baby, I'm going to go to bed now because it's about time and grandma's tired. And I remember just thinking like, oh, I was hoping that we were going to have this monumental conversation and she was going to tell me how meaningful this was for her. But she was just like, because also, you know, she came from this mixed family too. So I'm like, oh, and this is a multiracial black president. Like, aren't you excited? And she said, yeah, baby, it's time. It's time. We needed to have that forever ago. And now we got time to catch up because we, you know, we're so late. We're so late to have this happen. And so um, I, I think that she taught me a lot in that, that she was excited about Barack Obama and was proud to have casted her vote for him. But also it's just like, don't forget, baby, that this is high time, that we've fought a lot for this and this needed to happen forever ago. And why did it take so long? And so that this was like this very sobering moment and like, and let, don't let it take that long again was kind of the message I got from her. And so when I think about this opportunity, I think about how I want a world where, cause there's so many, so much conversation now about like, oh, what happens if this person would become the president, right? Because right now, Joe Biden is older than a lot of the candidates we've had as well, right? What if they were to become the president? And I, you know, hope that he will be safe and healthy and all of that. But that's been coming up in terms of people's considerations as well and saying, you know, what would it mean that we would get our first black woman president or woman of color president in that way, right? And I'm kind of like, what would it mean to have a world where we wouldn't have to think about having a workaround to be the way that we would get someone elected? into that office as well. And either way would be monumental, right? But like the fact that we're having that conversation is just something I've thought a lot about. And then um, I was one of the 200 black women who signed a letter to uh, Vice President uh, Joe Biden and saying that we really, really, really want to see a black woman or a woman of color in that role. And I said that as a person who personally was a Warren supporter, uh, during the election, but in this case, I, I, I really think it's important, um, specifically because of who carried him over the thresholds um, and made it possible for him to be the nominee. And so I believe that Black women have been the, the backbone of what it's made it possible for the progressive candidates who have become our nominees for so many years. And I want to see that paid forward, that we're not just um, 
expected to be the foot soldiers, but also um, that we are given the respect and representation that we deserve for our leadership, that reciprocal nurturing <laughs> that I was talking about before. So I'm excited to see what happens. Um, you know, I think the one last thing I want to say about it is that there have been some conversation where it was reported that um, James Clyburn had said, oh, you know, in some ways it would be more important to have a black woman in the Supreme Court than it would be uh, in the vice presidency. And Joe Biden himself in the past had said, you know, that he would promise that he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court and people were focused more on that. And the thing that really got into my craw about that was I want both. Mm-hmm. It's time for both. And that's when I hear my grandma being like, it's time. I want it all. I kind of wonder if <laughs> grandma's response was more of like, there's still a long way to go here. Exactly. There's a long way to go. And I'm going to be a happy. lot of restructuring that still needs to happen. And so let's get excited, but let's keep working at the same time. Exactly. And with any of these women, right? I mean, that's the thing too. I, I, what I don't want to have happen, and I, and also I'm going to be happy with whomever it is, because I, right now I'm just focused on, you know, saving the Republic. But I think that what I want to see is a vote of confidence in the leadership of women of color. And, you know, I think any of the women of color who have been named and any of the women who've been named, like Elizabeth Warren, who I very much respect, are people whose leadership I think that the country really needs. But I also think that there's a specific perspective that we really need from the people who've been most affected by COVID-19 and those disparities as well right now, with um, women of color being the most economically impacted. That could really benefit from having someone who is closest to the issues in that position. So I'm, you know, sitting on the edge of my seat just like everyone else and hoping that when this podcast is out that we are celebrating history made. And most of all, it's also because I want the next generation to see that normalized. You know, I remember one of my mentors has um, multiracial children who also self-identify as black uh, grandchildren who said that they didn't know that men could be president. Um, when they because they were so young and they saw Hillary running and had gone to all these Hillary events that they didn't know men could be president or white men could be president, sorry, because they, they had known about Barack Obama. They didn't know white men could be president. And I remember everyone was laughing when the kids said that. But it was an interesting thing because they had seen Barack Obama and then they saw Hillary Clinton running and did not know that white men could be president. And how asinine that sounded for all of us adults who'd like seen all the pictures growing up of who had been president of this country before Barack Obama. But I, um, I really got a kick out of that because these kids were just like, yeah, I just didn't know that white men could do that. Um, and that just being, you know, such an interesting thing to think about in terms of the real reality of how the systems have been shaped thus far. Um, we just applaud you. We applaud the work you're doing. Uh, we're proud of the platform you, you're using to share your voice. We, we just hope um, people continue to listen to you because you have a lot to say. Oh, thank you. And there were just so many questions we didn't even ask. <laughs> There's just so much to talk about. And uh, you have so much to say. And uh, we're, we are very grateful. So, um, Jamia Wilson, thank you for thank being you. with us today, for sharing for your perspective, for the work that you're doing, for the voice that you share. Um, We appreciate it uh, very much. Thank you so much. Thank you both. And thank you for modeling beautiful allyship and 
or giving people someone to tell it to. It's, it's so, so, so important. I mean, I think that that's, you know, just going to be something I'm going to think about too. Who can I be there to be a listening ear for even more, you know? Um, I think that's the thing that like hurts me the most, just um, the amount of people who I hear from, you know, just readers of my books or things like that who feel that they don't have anyone to talk to. So I really thank you for the really beautiful work that you're doing. It's so important. It saves lives. So thank you. Just real quick, if you want to learn more about Jamia's work, where, where could they do so? Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about my work, check me out on jamiawilson.org or jamiawilson.com, both works. And you can find out about my work, different events that we can meet at, and also um, find out about my books and other organizations that I care about as well. And we hope that we'll be able to meet you one day face to face. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would love that. I know, right? We just, we got to get this COVID thing handled so we can all gather again. Right. We don't live that far apart. So, you know, it, yes. it, 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 we long for the day that would be possible. I can't wait. You live somewhere that's beautiful too. I've been, I've been where you are. So it's really beautiful. Well, thanks again. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we truly hope you enjoyed that interview as, as much as we did. The fact is, one of the things we need to tell you is that when we finished and stopped recording this interview with Jamia, we continued to talk for another hour and a half. Totally <laughs> unexpected. We had no idea that was going to happen. I don't think any, we, none of us planned that. And we, we thought she's a really busy person. She's going to need to go. And, and she actually said, no, I, I have time. Let's, let's continue talking. And we just talked about so many things. We couldn't believe it, the way we connected with her. And we wish you could have heard all of that, um, that part of that recording too, because it was pretty extraordinary. Or the part of that mm -hmm. conversation was pretty extraordinary. I know I, I was surprised as well that the conversation kept going on and on and on. And I know at one point my wife poked her head in because we were packing for vacation as we were scheduled to leave the next morning. And uh, and so it was it was our packing time uh, late on a Friday evening. Uh, but it was just it was oh gosh, it was just so inspire, inspiring talking with her for that long and, and getting to know her more and, and hearing more about her values and the things that she she really holds dear yeah and we, we realized first of all i want to ask you did you get in trouble because you uh, had to take so long <laughs> was that not a good way to trouble. start vacation <laughs> <laughs> it's just most of our interviews end after about an hour hour and a half at yeah. most and the fact three. that i was still locked in my room for for an extra hour and a half yeah so it was a three hour total interview <laughs> so yeah we were conversation so um but yeah, the values that we shared, you know, about our faith, uh, you know, about how we look at people, about listening, about connecting and the importance about leaning into hard stuff mm -hmm. and knowing that that's really how we grow and develop as human beings and how, how vital that is. Yeah. It's really special. I hope all of you who are listening, like us, uh, just are willing to lean into uncomfortability to a degree and and to make ourselves uncomfortable because we know that there's always more that we we can learn and there's more growing to be had so we hope um maybe that this conversation will encourage you and inspire you to maybe pick up a book that you've not read that you've heard good things about or to read another article or to follow jamia 
on social media. She's consistently posting articles that will challenge. Yeah. Sometimes we kick and we scream <laughs> because we don't like the uncomfortable stuff, but we know that ultimately we can learn and we can become better people. And that's really what this, this is about, this podcast, this whole series, it's about that. So once again, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope that you um, really learned something. And if you appreciate these, these podcasts, we urge you, we, we invite you to support them financially. You can go on patreon.com and there are a number of opportunities uh, for, for, for you to, to support these podcasts. You can support a single episode, you can do it monthly. Um, any amount of money uh, will be helpful and important. And we hope that you'll consider that very much. Yeah, so until we listen again.